Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is March 24th, and I will be your host, Erica, joining us in our virtual studio from all over the world. We have Jonathan, Tiffany, Gabby, Doug, and Elliot will be joining us later in the show. Today we're going to be talking about... Today we're going to be talking about chemical cocktails, vaccine excipients, and the autism question. And I know we've covered the vaccine issue before, but we want to revisit this issue based on new studies that are coming out and information. So the public believes that vaccines are specified viruses and sterile solutions free from undesirable contaminants. Uh-uh. <laughs> This dark reality is much different, as many of our listeners will know if you read the SOT page regularly. So we don't expect the mainstream media, health authorities, doctors, or government agencies to give us all the facts. Contaminated faulty vaccines are based on poor research, and hundreds of thousands of children are damaged all over the world, causing an epidemic in childhood allergies, autoimmune disorders, brain inflammation, developmental delays, and autism. Close to 1 million children will be diagnosed with autism this year. So what are these numbers saying about the chemical cocktails that are being injected into children at an alarming rate, fueling a $50 billion vaccine industry? While health organizations continue to deny any relationship between autism and vaccinations, Scientists outside the U.S. are are researching the synergistic toxicity of chemicals such as aluminum and mercury, and they're presenting peer-reviewed science making a clear connection between immune activation events, aluminum adjuvants, and autism. So we do realize this is a very hotly debated topic, and if we have any parents out there that have autistic children you want to add, please feel free to call in or join our chat. But we just want to kind of cover some of the stuff that's coming out, especially outside of the United States, about these, you know, adjuvants and vaccine excipients and just basically the chemical cocktails that are, are bombarding children and adults, too. For our listeners, uh, we recommend a documentary that was made several years ago, and we're going to play some clips in the show today. It's called Trace Amounts, and it's essentially about thimerosal, which is mercury that was used in vaccines, and it's one man's story about having a tetanus shot as an adult and how he went through just a horrific experience, and it essentially led him to do all this extensive research about thimerosal and what it does to the body, um, Eli Lilly, the pharma corporation, and how they've gotten away with poisoning the public for, what, 70 years? And mm-hmm. so should we start off with that clip? Sounds good. Start off with the... Yeah, so we have a clip Which from one? the Trace Elements movie about autism, and I think it's a good place to start. Rain man. Yeah. The People's Court. In 1988, the movie Rain Man would be the first to finally introduce the general public to the word autism. What, is he crazy? No. Is he retarded? Not exactly. He's not crazy, he's not retarded, but he's here. Well, he's an autistic savant. I don't know what that means. Well, some people like him used to be called idiot savants. They have certain deficiencies, certain abilities. Yeah, but he's retarded. Autistic. 
People were hearing the word autism for the first time and struggling to understand what it meant. Even though a child psychologist by the name of Leo Connor had discovered autism almost five decades earlier, it would remain so rare through this entire period that it was simply never talked about. But that was about to change very quickly, when thousands of families' lives were soon to be turned upside down. To end our week of autism coverage, we're going to tell you about one group of very young children being classified on the autism spectrum at what some say is an alarming rate. By the end of this newscast, one more person will be diagnosed with autism. The numbers are going up so quickly, something has to be done. The numbers are staggering, and there's so much fear about autism. There's so much misinformation about autism. The autism epidemic is on the brink of entering a brand new chapter. These numbers represent staggering 57% increase. That is more new pediatric cases yes. and AIDS, diabetes, and cancer combined. combined for pediatric cases. We need this entire globe to come in and find the cure because this is a global epidemic. New numbers from the CDC showing one child in 68 has autism. That means about one million children in the United States are now diagnosed with autism. How could this have possibly happened? Did you guys hear that? No. No, no, we didn't. Nope. I wonder why not. Hmm. Well, one of oh, our chatters can... said they can hear it. Oh, the chatters say they can hear it. Okay, maybe it's just the host who can't hear it. Okay. So what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, it just started off with the clip from Rain Man where they were... The Tom Cruise character was getting the lowdown on what autism is from his brother's doctor, played by Dustin Hoffman. Mm. So that's basically when the world at large was introduced to the concept of autism. And now the cases are just skyrocketing. And the, the question yeah. is, how did all this happen? Yeah. Yeah, some of the statistics... Is uh, in 1998, there were one in 500 children diagnosed. By 2004, it was one in 166. Mm. And uh, by 2012, it was one in 88. And now, to, or 2014, it's one in 68. And, and now, as it said in the show description, over a million children will be diagnosed with autism 2017. And so, what is it that they yeah. say? What in twenty thirty? It'll be one in two. One in if we continue yeah. at this rate. Well, in the United States. Yeah, that it's doesn't kind of mean. insane. Sorry, do you think? Okay. That, <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was just wondering. Do you think that initial explosion of diagnoses was kind of inspired by? people learning about it, I guess sort of a form of confirmation bias, and then, you know, we started to notice the vaccines um, having this effect. You know, I'm, I was just curious, I, I don't doubt that the vaccines have played, you know, a majority role in the explosion of autism, uh, but I'm curious about that initial explosion of diagnoses. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what I was going to bring up, too, because I know... Um at, at first, once, you know, it, it started to get reported, this, this huge explosion, they did, like a lot of the, the kind of mainstream was trying to blame it on, uh, you know, better diagnostic techniques and kind of more people, you know, doctors being more familiar with these things and more able to kind of um, 
to, to recognize the symptoms and, and give a proper diagnosis of autism. Whereas, um, but I mean, when you, when you start to see these numbers, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, well, maybe at first there was kind of a little blip, but that does not explain even, like, it doesn't even come close to explaining this explosion that we're seeing. Like, one in 68, that's just insane. Mm-hmm. Well, and the symptoms are just really telling, you know, as you're saying, maybe people didn't notice it in the past, but, you know, we've watched a lot of documentaries, the Vax documentary and this trace amounts and and a lot of vaccine documentaries show these children and they're they're far beyond normal Mm -hmm. as far as Mm -hmm. the incessant screaming, the head banging, the complete loss of, of... uh, speech and ability to social socially interact, the lack of eye contact. I mean, you could see, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, seeing that rarely, but not to the amount that you have now. No. No. I mean, there's, there's clearly something going on here um, that goes well beyond just... Uh, diagnostic techniques like it just it's it's too it, it the numbers are just too too crazy just, to be able to blame it on something like that yeah, yeah i agree and i was thinking well is the u.s the leading country for incidents of autism for kids you know i was trying to think or check european sources because yes it does uh, give me the impression that in certain countries people are seeing more autism but no, the statistics in Europe, they're pretty much similar. Like one in mm. every 100 kids have a sp- autism spectrum disorders. Mm. And uh, at least in Spain, it's uh, one or two cases for every 1,000 children. Mm. A well, little bit less than the European certain average. parts of the U.S., like the, the Amish communities, where by and large they do not vaccinate. I think there was one mm-hmm. researcher who did like a little case studies of Amish communities and none of the kids had uh, autism. Well, he said that there were a couple of kids who had autism, but they were adopted from other countries. So they were probably Uh vaccinated before they were adopted. But amongst the Mm. Amish, the rates of autism are low or non-existent. Yeah, the name of that article is called The Amish Anomaly, and it was written by Dan Olmstead back in 2005. Mm. Because I think the United States is the leading, you know, it has the heaviest vaccine calendar, you know, or it mm-hmm. tops, you know, <laughs> among the world. There are other countries that probably have a more normal, you know, vaccine calendar. It will be interesting if they share those crazy statistics. I don't think so. Yeah, so we were discussing, and maybe we can get into it, um, just the topic of our show is chemical cocktails. So in the trace amounts, they really focus heavily on the thimerosal, the mercury, and that the um, narrators convinced that that's what the where the autism is coming from is this overload of thimerosal and all these vaccines that children are getting, and then documentation from parents who said their child was fine, and then they got the. HIB, or, or is it, excuse me, the MMR vaccine, and then they declined radically mm-hmm. after that. And uh, for our listeners and readers who've watched the Vax documentary, 
you know, you see a lot of it is focused on the MMR and, um, you know, the CDC's mass fight to dismiss that and, you know, there's uh, mm -hmm. s the belief that, okay, so the MMR was taken out in 1992, they removed the thimerosal from vaccines and the autism rate continues to, to soar. Mm. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have yeah. one, one thought on that. Uh, uh, there was a researcher, I believe, was a paper that came out of Denmark where they, after they took the thimerosal out of their vaccines, and I think it showed that the autism rate pretty much stayed the same, but they cooked the numbers. Mm -hmm. They had a certain number of children that they studied in the initial group where they said, oh, this many percentage of kids have autism. And then after they took it out, they increased the number of the kids they studied. So it looked like the numbers stayed the same, but actually they went down. Yeah. So that's one mm. thought on it. Another thought is that although they said they've taken out the thimerosal, um, they have the, the vaccines are still not, they're not mercury free. So although they have, um, you know, taken it out to the extent that it's no longer as like an added ingredient, the process itself of creating these vaccines, or a lot, I shouldn't just say across the board all vaccines because I'm not 100% sure if it's all of them, but mercury is used in the, the, the development of vaccines. So there's going to be, at the very least, traces of, um, of mercury in these vaccines anyway. So... Um, you know, it, it, we don't know how much mercury is required to be in there before you start to see some of these um, autistic spectrum disorders start to show up. So that's that's another possibility. Gabby? Do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that um, it is uh, the... My thought is that there is research which shows that, yes, mercury is very toxic, even in trace amounts, especially for sensitive people. But also aluminum, you know, another adjuvant in vaccines. And the two together, it is not like one plus one, two. It is like one plus one, it is a hundred, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They potentiate each other, you know. So yeah. I think it could be related to that, you know. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Doug. Uh, I was just wondering if you guys think this is a also uh, like a compounded result of just the environmental pollutants um, that we have a lot in the Western world. Now, I know the Western world is not the only place with pollutants. In fact, you know, a lot of, uh, in, well, I guess a lot. In some third world countries, it's extremely bad as well. Uh, and I know China is not a third world country, but in China especially, um, so I wonder, you know, I'd be curious to see statistics from there as well. Um, but I wonder, too, if this is just compounded from generation after generation of increasing levels of toxicity in the environment. Yeah, it, it certainly could be. Um, but the one, the, the major difference that I see is that, um, and, and this isn't to, to downplay environmental toxicity, because obviously that, that I'm sure that plays a role in, in, you know, people's exposure and, and getting, um, you know, these toxic levels of, of different, um, you know, metals and uh, all the whole spectrum of, of all the different toxic stuff that we're surrounded by constantly. But I think one of the big differences is that when they put this stuff into vaccines, it's being injected directly into the bloodstream. 
And what that does is bypasses all the body's, um, you know, built up uh, responses to um, dealing with, with toxic stuff from the environment. Because your body's actually quite good at dealing with a lot of toxic stuff. Now, mind you, we're pushing it to its absolute limits at this point in time. But um, I do think that there's a difference between, uh, you know, breathing something in or getting exposure on the skin or something um, or eating something. Uh, versus having it directly injected into the bloodstream. You know, the body just doesn't have the same kind of uh, mechanisms in place because it's kind of an unnatural delivery system. Like, you know, out in nature, you wouldn't usually get a lot of um, toxins from the environment kind of coming indirectly through through the bloodstream. There are some cases, obviously, but uh, but in general, it's not really somewhere where the body has um, a lot of its defense, defenses built up. So... I think it's a good point, but um, but I do think that the vaccine issue is different. Yeah, though, and that's a really good point that you made too, and I've heard that as well before, uh, especially from Doctor Tent, who's a natural practitioner yeah. from downstate in Michigan. He uh, he says that too. Like when you ingest something, as it's going through your digestive tract, there are mechanisms in the body that are able to recognize and deal with whatever that substance is. But then, mm-hmm. of course, as you mentioned, if you put it directly into the bloodstream, there's no recognition there's no filter so it just you know the the negative effects kick off right away as opposed to perhaps in some cases the gut or the liver might be able to filter some of these things out mm-hmm. there's like 80 percent of the immune system of the gut there's stomach acid as well which decreases mm-hmm. with years but you know that's very potent defense mechanism against pollution mm-hmm. well one of our yeah. chatters made a comment about pregnancy and um I wanted to add that when they removed the thimerosal from vaccines in the U.S. in 92, they, they kind of had a push to vaccinate pregnant women for the flu vaccine, mm-hmm. with the flu vaccine, excuse me. And then that still had the thimerosal in it. And so one to two flu shots during pregnancy and the child is essentially swimming in that toxic heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, there is so much research which shows that it's so detrimental to vaccinate pregnant women with a flu shot. Like there are more adverse effects and that they cannot even cover it up. Like people, you know, hear about other women having the vaccine and then having an abortion right afterwards. So you said, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to get vaccinated, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's so ridiculous that they cannot cover it up, you know? And the vaccine, the flu vax has not even been tested for safety in pregnant women. And even on the insert, it says should not be given to pregnant women unless there is a, a strong need for it, which what determines that? But bottom line is it mm. hasn't been tested for safety in pregnant women, yet it's given to pregnant women, recommend, highly recommended that pregnant women take the flu shots. Mm-hmm. And in it's the context of, of, uh, of them having more abortions, let's remember that abortion is also like a physiological way to get rid of a baby that is not viable. It's not going to have like, you know, a chance to live normal life, so to speak. So mm-hmm. that's a lot too, you know. Yeah. Should we play that next clip? The two-minute one. Mercury is one of the most toxic elements on the planet, much more toxic than lead. Two parts per billion is the Environmental Protection Agency's limit in drinking water. 
200 parts per billion is the level in liquid the EPA classifies as hazardous waste. 50,000 parts per billion is the concentration of mercury in most thimerosal-containing vaccines. Society has put in place several institutions to take care of kids. First is the FDA. They're supposed to license vaccines and affirmatively prove they're safe. They have failed. The second institution, CDC, is supposed to mandate vaccines, uh, again, based on safety and need. They have failed. The third group to protect kids is the, the doctors, the American Academy of Pediatrics. They have failed, partly because they can't be sued, partly because they are bought off by industry and government contracts. The fourth group, industry, they're normally responsible for ensuring safety because they can be sued if they make an unsafe product. They're off the hook, too. Frank Angley's studies in the 40s and 50s confirms that thimerosal is not effective as a preservative and extremely neurotoxic. Eli Lilly does nothing. A 1967 study in applied microbiology finds that thimerosal killed mice when added to vaccines. Eli Lilly does nothing. A 1977 study reports 10 of 13 infants treated with thimerosal for umbilical cord infections die of mercury toxicity. Eli Lilly does nothing. A 1983 study concludes that not only is thimerosal extremely toxic to cells, but it is also capable of changing cell properties. Eli Lilly does nothing. A study in 1986 finds that thimerosal has the strongest irreversible lethal effect. Our own CDC, FDA, and AAP remain completely asleep at the wheel, allowing Eli Lilly to continue doing nothing. Yeah, so that one is basically saying that they're, what, the the level of toxicity for mercury is 50 parts per billion. And that's what's in vaccines. And uh, thimerosal is not even a good preservative because that's why they claim that they use thimerosal in the vaccines. It's not even a good preservative. It kills uh, cells. So... That's what we're dealing with here. That's what we're injecting into yeah. ourselves and to our children. And they know it, and yet they do nothing. That's, you know, that's the real head-scratcher behind the whole thing. And that's when you have to really start to like question the reason that they are using mercury in the vaccines i mean if it's not if it's like they say well you know we need it as a preservative but it turns out it's not even really that good a preservative it's like then then you start to think conspiratorial type thoughts because it's like why the hell would it be in there then if there's other stuff out there that could work better as a preservative and maybe might might even be not as damaging to the individual it's like why and i've never heard a good answer on that yeah is there like a mercury lobby (laughs) you know could be it is evil. It is basically mercury. It's like the quintessential anti-nutrient. Just, it, yeah. it really just doesn't make any sense at all, like you were saying, Doug. I mean, if they wanted to just make money, they could just make a vaccine and just have normal saline in the vial, and nobody would know any difference. But they totally, have to yeah. put all of this stuff in there. So, again, the question is yeah. why? Why do they do it? It must be... Because they know it makes people sick. Maybe they want people to be sick for some reason. And I don't understand that either because if you inject children with these vaccines, they're out of the workforce for the rest of their life. They can't be, you know, obedient worker slaves like everyone else. They need 24-hour care for the rest of their lives. Yes. So I don't, I can't, I don't understand it. I struggle with that too. It's like I, I, I have a, I guess, conspiratorial leaning on a lot of things, but I also, 
<laughs> I also uh, feel strongly that a lot of times there's just kind of a chaos that happens, mm-hmm. you know, with people in, in large industries or in society and things and things just end up happening because people are careless uh, or, you know, are callous or unfeeling or whatever, or, you know, the influence of psychopathy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, I struggle between that. Like, is there, you know, is there a board somewhere that's like rubbing their hands in glee? Like we're going to make people yeah. so we can make more money or is it mm-hmm. like, is it a combination of maybe there are some people like that? And then uh, a lot of medical professions or professionals are saying, we're not going to take this out because, you know, screw you, you're not a doctor and you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like mm-hmm. a pride thing, you know, that leads them to not look into the evidence around it. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a, the whole thing, too. I mean, the same, the same argument was going for uh, the mercury in dental amalgams as well. And I remember I heard one argument at one point where, where somebody was saying that the, whatever, American Dental Association, whatever the the, the you know, government body was that was still insisting that mercury is perfectly safe to have in in dental amalgams they couldn't actually admit that it's damaging because then suddenly they're responsible for everybody who's ever gotten a dental amalgam and any kind of damage that might have resulted because of that so it's like they kind of maintain this kind of strict no it's absolutely perfectly safe stance to avoid having to take responsibility um and, and, you know, I can see maybe something similar to that going on in, in the vaccine industry as well. It's like, if we admitted that it's bad and we um, started taking it out, then suddenly we're responsible for all, everything leading up to this point. So, you know, I can kind of see from that, that angle why they might be so adamantly denying it just because they, they can't afford to take responsibility for their past actions. But well, um, at the same time, it almost seems like they, they, they want to keep on, you know, spreading this toxicity. Yeah, I agree. I think that on a daily basis, what we see on medicine is like incompetence, narcissism, you know, all the cognitive biases works against people in general. You know, everybody wants to cover their egos, their, oh, no, we didn't make a mistake and so forth. But on another level, there is something essentially evil to mm. this, you know, to this whole vaccine campaign, you know. They yeah. tell people, if people knew all the ingredients, I'm pretty sure everybody will be up in arms. But most people think, you know, uh, that yes, the vaccine is just a little bit of these that will activate your immune system and that will strengthen you and protect you, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I was watching a uh just to bring up Jordan Peterson again because I pretty much have to do it every show. Um, I was watching a little video um, of his and he was, it, it was like a question and answer thing and one of the questions was whether, the, it, you know, Jordan Peterson thought that um, the rise of kind of postmodernism and the social justice warrior and all that kind of thing, if there was kind of like, uh, it, there was a purpose behind it, that they're trying to kind of mess people up and, and give them this kind of empty ideology that they can all adhere to so we can screw up society even more. And he said something interesting. He said, like, you know, there is some evidence that maybe there, there might be some kind of evil plan behind it, but he said that it could all be explained by stupidity. And he said you should always assume stupidity before male, vol- vol- male violence. Sorry, I'm screwing up that word. Before <laughs> evil intent, let's say that. Malevolence, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, so so he was saying that, you know, always assume stupidity before evil intent, before, like, the conspiracy thing. And if you, you know, if you if you can't get an explanation out of stupidity, 
then maybe you start looking more towards uh, the idea of evil board of directors rubbing their hands in glee. That, well, that, that reminds me when... Oh, go, go ahead, Gabby, please. No, there are certain philosophers, uh, philosophers like, well, like Gurdjieff, that says basically, like, you know, nobody does evil for the sake of evil, you know, but um, mm. it is basically un- un- unconscious programs that basically were all the evil li- uh, lies, you know, in our, in our reality, you know. Like, the, the way mm. to heaven is paved with, <laughs> the, to hell is paved with good intentions, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think stupidity makes sense. I mean, it, 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 you look at to one of the articles that we were looking at last week about uh, Lyme's disease being in your head mm-hmm. uh, and how a lot of doctors are diagnosing people with uh, mental conditions because they the doctors think that the patient believes they have some kind of disease when they don't. And there's this mm-hmm. prevailing, like, there's a real leaning in the medical profession to just think that your patients are, are crazy, that they're, you know, and they can't figure out what's wrong with them. Um and to me, that on the part of the medical professionals is stupidity, you know, because yeah. it's not an actual, it's not an actual scientific inquiry into what's going on with this person who's obviously suffering and is my patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could say that there's a conspiracy in the AMA to discredit Lyme's disease, but I don't think that that's true. I think just, you know, it's ego. Mm-hmm. I think that's why yeah, it works so good because, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than stupid people. There's even like a book written <laughs> yeah. about that. Like, yeah. if you know you have like a, you know, typical psychopath, you know, against you, you know, you really watch out, you know. But you take your guard down when you think that people are working with good intentions, you know, even though they're stupid, you know. Yeah, yeah I think that there are a lot of good intentioned researchers out there. These stupid, smart people with PhDs who study cells and chemical reactions and really believe in the whole uh, artificial immunity introduced by vaccines lie. And they really don't have any bad intent. They just really believe that theory and they think that they're doing some good. And they think that all these ingredients and incipients and adjuvants that they add to vaccines will boost the immune immune reaction Uh, they believe that vaccines historically did some good and it was responsible for wiping out major scourges when really they weren't so yeah a lot of really stupid smart people doing the groundwork (laughs) and then on the top at the top of the pyramid you have the really evil ones (laughs) and then they can't come come out and say oh we were really stupid yeah. We shouldn't have been putting that in the vaccine. Their egos won't let them. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's so, just, I remember last year, um, like right around the time of the, the yearly vaccine controversy flare-up, and that seems like it happens every year right around flu season, and there was a letter going around that it was a drunken rant from an immunologist. I don't know if you guys ever saw this. Uh, no. It was. I'm not perceiving that it said in the rant, like, this is a drunken rant, but this person was like a, a professional immunologist and they went off, you know, about how they had studied this topic and they were an expert and had been taught by the best in the field. So how dare you question my judgment? You know, vaccines work mm-hmm. safe, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if, you know, a lot of that is because if somebody invests a lot of time into their career, into study and learning a, a skill or anything, they're, you know, personally, highly emotionally invested in, in their correctness, in their knowledge. And so as soon as you challenge that, they get really spiky. Well, you're seeing that now with the, um, 
you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Mercury panel, the commission, you know, Donald Trump wanting to look into it. And it's like people are freaking out. Well, if we look into this and it's the debate is is getting hotter and, you know, it's more divided and. You know, we've said many times on this show, when you have 94% compliance, Mm -hmm. what's the big deal with those 6%? I mean, and I do think, at least in the U.S., we're going to see more of these mandatory vaccination laws. And it's like, don't look at the stupid science, just do what we say. And Mm -hmm. it's like a political agenda, you know, if you're... Democrat or Republican, it's the same thing. The last thing you want to do at a family dinner is bring up the autism discussion. (laughs) There's two very hotly debated stances on it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what you guys... Oh, sorry, Tiff. Go ahead. Uh, (laughs) I was going to say, I wonder what you guys think about uh, the stigma around this. I guess, one, do you think that we'll ever get out of it to a point where you can kind of like with the majority of the population have a reasonable discussion around the evidence that's come up against vaccines and their safety? Uh, and I guess, you know, if, if that could happen, like what, what would lead to that? You know, could the say... The world uh, ending? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One in two children being... Uh, yeah, one in two children being autistic. I mean... Yeah, mm. that would be hard to ignore. Yeah, and even then, you know, uh, I don't think so. Sorry, I, mean, <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, what I see is like, yeah, let's give the meds, you know, and let's yeah. What it makes what it makes me think of is <laughs> sorry again, Tiff. Well, I, even at this point, with one in sixty-eight people having autism. I mean, it's pretty hard to ignore. There's probably very few people who don't know somebody who has a special needs child or an autistic child at this point. Yeah. Mm. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It is hard to ignore right now. I, I guess what it made me think of is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the saturated fat controversy. So the mm-hmm. sugar industry really good job at demonizing saturated fat and it was the it was standard knowledge that fat was bad for you for many years even though that's not true and now it may not be like the majority of the population that understands that that was false but it is coming to a point now where people can talk about it and there are a lot of people that understand that yeah fat is not bad for you it's sugar and carbs and the mixture of all those three along with that well that that is very positive to hear because what i've seen i thought it was going to be that way but uh, what I'm seeing, it's not that case, you know. There's more hysteria, and then it's just like the, all the uh, the mainstream elite, mm. you know, is just like uh, going down against all that movement, you know, by stricter guidelines that are getting accepted, believe it or not, you know, despite mm. the evidence. Mm. So I think yeah. similar, you know, with the vaccine movement, you know. Mm. Well, do it's we want to get into uh, some of the other causes? Because people... They're saying thimerosal is not just it. I mean, there's other ingredients in vaccines or other areas of concern, not just vaccines, that can lead to the development of autism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what Dabby was talking about before, aluminum, um, that that article that was um, actually at the top page of SOT for um, 
over a week, I think, um, called Aluminum Adjuvant, Cytokines, Brain Inflammation, Autism. Did China discover the missing piece of the autism puzzle? Makes a very good case for um, uh, aluminum actually being the kind of the key to the key piece of the puzzle. And I will defer to Gabby to explain it because it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, let's try to boil it down very easy. There is this father of an autistic children that found very good research and connected the dots in a very clean, neat way. He found, basically, he starts off by quoting uh, Dr. Patterson, saying that he found, this doctor found la that... Uh, pregnant, um, pregnant woman, you know, who had a viral or bacterial infection will have a high risk of having a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder, such as autism or schizophrenia, mm -hmm. you know. And they were able to reproduce these, uh, phenomena in animal studies. So that pretty much, like, you know, leads to a lot of a uh, point of view that is not being told to us because we mm. come to think about the brain as a separate organ or isolated events that are untouchable by, you know, uh, you know, by the environment. But then we see that the immune system and the brain, the neurological system, they are in constant uh, communication with each other. Like if something happens to one, it leads to something happening to the other one and so forth. So they were speculating that, you know, if you have an immune active, if your immune system gets activated at a certain point, it will give specific information to the brain and to the brain of the developing fetus in this case. And uh, it will give information that will lead to inflammation, you know, in the brain leading to, these disorders. So that's the start of, you know. There's more details. Do we want to describe what an yeah. aluminum adjuvant is for our listeners? Um, again, the, the article is a must-read. It's excellent. But basically, it's a, a bio-persistent brain-injuring toxin. Mm -hmm. And it makes its way to the brain where it stays possibly forever. And because of its biopersistence, it can generate long term, a long term immune response. As Gabby was talking about, um, the body has no way to get rid of it, essentially. Um, basically, the ubiquity of aluminum adjuvants use in pediatric vaccines all over the world is considered insidiously unsafe. Mm. And um, we carried another article on SOT just yesterday called The Health Impact of Today's Most Prevalent Environmental Toxin, Aluminum. And it was basically a group of scientists who got together um, and discussed uh, in Vancouver about aluminum uh, in pollution and processed foods and vaccines, how the neurotoxicity of it, and then um, basically how the scientific evidence is showing that it, it stays in the body, it breaches protective, protective barriers, it induces a wildly oxidative process, fires inflammation, disrupts genetic tr transcription, impairs metabolism, 
accumulates in the brain and the testicles, linked to cancer, infertility, Alzheimer's disease, anxious, aggressive, and autistic behavior. And um, mm-hmm. they talk, this, uh, this aluminum expert named Christopher Exley talks about how many people think that aluminum is harmless. And he says that aluminum may be the third most abundant element on Earth, but for most of its history, it has been sequestered by silica. So it's only now in the last few decades that we've managed to put it into biological systems. And um, he basically said in the last few decades, aluminum production has soared globally, and uh, research on the health consequences have been steadily accumulated. And I just... finish that off he talks about three aluminum safety myths and um, basically the first myth is that we're told aluminum aluminum in vaccine is safe because it ra- is rapidly excreted from the body and he's saying it is not it persists for years after injection the myth number two is that public health maintains injected aluminum is localized in the body or the injection site he's saying it is not research shows clearly that it is swallowed up by the and I'm not I'm going to ruin this word the phyocytic cells and they migrate uh, to other organs and accumulate in the brain where it exerts neurotoxic effects and then the third myth and maybe we can discuss this a little bit is public health toxicology says the dose is the poison and extremely high doses of aluminum are needed to do the damage This is not true. Dose-response studies show that low doses of the smallest size particles of aluminum are the most toxic, and it obeys toxic particle toxicity, so not dose-dependent toxicity. So basically low concentrated doses, which they say are in vaccines, were more toxic than a single large dose. That makes sense because the immune system will read in a more easy, you know, signal that it's high and loud, and it will deal with it more effectively. But if it's a low dose, like in nanoparticles, yes, that could be passed down, you know, without detection, so to speak. It's almost like it's a little aluminum Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, kind of Trojan horse. And it turns on a signal that it's, like, very difficult uh, to calm down, you know, it turns, it activates inflammation that is specifically related to the brain and how it should function and develop in a child. And it just like a Trojan horse that basically screws up the, the, the normal development of the, of the brain, you know, of the brain. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've got um, aluminum entering the system um, in small doses, so they're kind of getting past some of the uh, defenses that the body naturally has, and they're accumulating in the brain, and they're causing uh, an, uh, an immune response um, in response to that accumulation, and that causes an inflammatory condition, and autism has been pointed out to be um, a persistent inflammation in the nervous system, specifically in the brain. I mean, it's not hard to connect the dots here to see that uh, aluminum accumulating in the brain causing an immune reaction that is persistent and ongoing. And that's actually what, what um, these autistic people are actually suffering from. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
it, it's 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 a pretty clear case. I mean, obviously, it hasn't been proven without a doubt, but it's like this this right here is where the research should be going right now. So this could be like. Go ahead, Gabby. Yes. No, I was just going to highlight again the synergistic toxicity concept. Basically, mm -hmm. that one plus one is equals a hundred. How is that? It's impossible. No, it it is actually what happens according to research. Mercury combined with aluminum may be a hundred more times um, more toxic than either metal by itself. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so this could be a possible scenario. Because not all children who get vaccinated develop autism, obviously. So you have to have some kind of susceptibility, whether it's genetic or mm -hmm. whether it happens in the wound. So say, Erica, you're pregnant and you get a bacterial or a viral infection while you're pregnant. So you have this immune response that sets off an immune response in your baby. And so that leaves him or her vulnerable to the toxins that might come in, like if you got a flu shot when you were pregnant, or even if you didn't mm -hmm. get a flu shot when you were pregnant after your baby is born and they're already vulnerable because of the viral or bacterial infection you had when you were pregnant, they get their uh, hepatitis B shot right after birth and their well baby shots. So already they're at a disadvantage and then you add these other toxins onto them and that can trigger them mm -hmm. or push them off the edge into some kind of neurodevelopmental disorder. Mm -hmm. And they are used, aluminum is used in the tetanus shot. Mm -hmm. It's also used mm -hmm. in the hepatitis A and B and as Tiffany mentioned, first day of life for children, mm -hmm. they're injected with the hep B shot. It's also in the flu shot or pneumonococcal, mm -hmm. uh, menococcal too, so meningitis, and then anthrax vaccines, mm. which I didn't know until I read that article. Uh, you know, there's so much controversy over the MMR vaccine with Dr. William Thompson coming out from the CDC and, you know, Dr. Wakefield and, and the movie Vaxxed, and nobody's even looking at aluminum. It's like, oh, mercury, 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 thimerosal. But now we have this yeah. article that comes out, and it's like, dear Lord, what is going on? Yeah. That's a very, that's very interesting that you point that out because everybody's worked up about mercury, and you know, there's <laughs> what about aluminum? <laughs> it is <laughs> aluminum that it's. And another thing that people have to keep in mind that neurodevelopment it happens, you know. Some of the key aspects of neurodevelopment happens after the baby is born and during the critical age where all the vaccines are given, you know, synapses are created, you know, certain parts of the brain are developed specifically on the calendar, of, um, on the vaccine calendar, you know. Yeah, I think uh, another issue that kind of leads to people kind of having difficulty accepting this is, well, like you were saying before, Tiff, it's like obviously not everybody who gets a vaccine gets autism, which kind of is, is like, you know, what people are left with this, well, what, you know, what, how can it be the vaccine? This person got the vaccine and they got autism. This person got the vaccine and they didn't. Um, and I think that individual susceptibility is um, kind of a big key to the puzzle as well. So not everybody is going to react to a specific toxin in the same way. I mean, we see a lot with um, 
stuff we talked about on the show in the past, like uh, methylation pathways, genetic differences in people's ability to actually detoxify, uh, how readily they, their immune system will respond to something, how if it will overreact to something or underreact. I mean, there so, are so many individual differences in a person's genetic makeup to how um, they deal with these kinds of exposures. So I think that um, you, you really need to look at um, how susceptible an individual is based on you know, some of maybe their genetic makeup or something like that, and whether whether or not they're going to be in kind of a high-risk group. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, to expect the medical industry to do that is maybe expecting too much. Yeah, this kind of research that we could be figuring, it out, uh, figuring out. There are some mm-hmm. people already doing something. For example, they have seen that testosterone appears to aggravate mercury toxicity, heavy metal toxicity during development. Mm. So these might explain why there is more autism in males, you know, children. Mm. Interesting. We have a video talking about this briefly, too. Do we want to play that? Do we? Yes. Even though you can't hear it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, everybody else can. (laughs) That's the most important. We'll play it. Something far worse. Now, most people have no idea that there's aluminum in the vaccine. Many investigators, particularly Dr. Boyd Haley, has shown that aluminum and mercury are synergistic in their action and extremely toxic, much more than one plus one, which is something that many people have never, never considered. We did uh, the study with neurons from culture, added aluminum and found aluminum was only slightly neurotoxic by itself and that the Marisol was significantly toxic by itself but when you put the two together at one point in the dying of the neurons when you had 10% death with the the Marisol alone you had over 60% death with the Marisol plus aluminum. So the aluminum definitely enhances the toxicity of the Marisol. The material and safety data sheet for thimerosal clearly states that thimerosal should never be combined with aluminum. It reads violent reactions possible with aluminum. So when the FDA finally did the math that alarmed so many, they neglected to include three major variables into their equation. Ethyl mercury injected with aluminum. Imagine what the math would have shown then. I would insist, we would insist, that mercury be removed and replaced. The government really has a position that thimerosal is not bad for you. It's not bad for you. It's not bad for you. It's not bad for you. When I had fully recovered, I would hear these words all over the news. I thought I must just be the one in a million that thimerosal can harm. But as time went by, the more curious I became. If I was a full-grown man when I got destroyed by the amount of mercury in a single vaccine, what could happen to a tiny baby getting three of these shots in one day? The science became my new obsession. And then we had this peculiar decision to increase the recommended coverage for the flu shot. Just 10 days after the IOM report, the CDC responded by publishing their recommendation that all babies start getting thimerosal-loaded flu shots, also recommending all pregnant women get this shot. Common sense and also all good science suggests that exposures in utero to these you know, tiny 
growing fetuses is catastrophic. Did you get your flu shot? I did. We did. I did. I did. Thimerosal was not removed from flu shots because it was not a routine childhood vaccine when the joint statement was made in 1999. Now, after five years of trying to cover their tracks, and just as the backstock of other thimerosal-loaded vaccines had finally run out, the CDC had taken it upon themselves to add thimerosal-loaded flu shots to the childhood vaccine schedule. But this was far worse. Should I really be getting a shot? I mean, is it safe? Yes. Last year I had a pregnant patient that did not get vaccinated. She ended up getting very sick from the flu and had to be hospitalized. Oh, that's terrible. How can they recommend thimerosal-containing vaccines to pregnant women now? I don't know why they still give it to pregnant women. Like, that's the last person I would give mercury to. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, if, if you look at who's more likely to be at risk, you, you can argue reasonably that the developing fetus, because, you know, the brain is still developing and all the organs are still developing, is more likely to be susceptible to the effects of mercury than is somebody who's already born and getting older. The FDA had issued an advisory to pregnant women three years earlier in 2001, warning them not to eat certain types of fish because of the dangers of mercury on the developing fetus. Giving it to a pregnant mother when they're telling them not to eat fish that has mercury in them, it's crazy. It's just crazy. We're seeing a whole new round of autism right now, and I think I'm connecting that with a flu shot, particularly in, in gestational time. Dr. Heiko Langner at the University of Montana tested the amount of mercury in flu shots given to pregnant women. The results confirmed the flu shot contained 25 micrograms per dose when the bottle was shaken. But when left to sit for 20 minutes and not shaken, the dose contained 27 micrograms. If the doctor doesn't shake the bottle up or the nurse doesn't shake it, the person getting it at the end could be getting 40 or 50 micrograms if they're over the 8th, ninth, or 10th vaccine in that bottle. Flu shots have never been tested on pregnant women. The manufacturer's own product insert that comes with a flu shot clearly states, Animal reproduction studies have not been conducted with fluzone. It is also not known whether fluzone can cause fetal harm when administered to a pregnant woman or can affect reproduction capacity. Fluzone should be given to a pregnant woman only if clearly needed. The CDC's focus remains solely where their liability rests. But mercury is a cumulative poison meaning you must account for all sources of exposure or you will be grossly underestimating the risks. You've got over a thousand tons of mercury out there in people's mouths in, in the United States. It's the largest repository of mercury anywhere is what people are walking around with in their mouths. We're going to take the coffee pot that hasn't been used in a long time and we're just going to place some amalgam in here, say, for ten seconds. One, two... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then we're going to dry it off so people can't say that it's water vapor. And we're going to place this now. Now, just what happens when you take a drink of hot coffee and you run it across your amalgam so you release a little bit more mercury? Mercury levels in the fetus that are born to a woman with amalgams will have higher tissue levels of mercury than the mother from the mother's fillings. New research suggests the placenta removes mercury from the mother's bloodstream and concentrates the mercury in the fetus. People used to joke, it's kind of a macabre joke, but if a woman is mercury toxic, one of the 
most effective ways for her to detoxify is to have a baby because the baby will draw a lot of that mercury out of her. Just like the individual person accumulates mercury as they age, the industrial world is accumulating mercury as it ages. There are over 600 coal-fired power plants in the United States that release over 50 tons of elemental mercury into the atmosphere each year. They burn coal to generate electricity, and when they're burning the coal, the, the natural mercury within the coal gets released into the environment. Dr. Raymond Palmer found that for each 1,000 pounds of mercury released into the environment, there was a 61% increase in the rate of autism. So there's this global pool of mercury, of elemental mercury, that's, that's circling the globe, literally. Rain eventually brings the mercury down to the surface of the earth, where it builds up not only on the ground, but also in the streams and lakes and oceans. A 2008 study concluded that something in the rain is playing a strong role in the autism rates. Once they enter a, a water body, they can get converted by bacteria from these elemental forms of mercury into an organic form of mercury called methylmercury. Algae will absorb the methylmercury. Zooplankton then eats the algae, which is then eaten by a small fish, which is then eaten by a bigger fish, and then a bigger fish comes along. And then Joe Fisher, who is at the top of the food chain, feeds his pregnant wife and children all of this accumulated mercury. Another hundred tons of mercury is released in the United States each year from municipal waste incinerators, chlorine plants, mining, cement plants, steel mills, automobiles, furnaces, crematoriums, and others. The uh, projection is that by 2050, uh, this will the world's mercury levels will almost double, and um, we're already at a very high level. We are literally saturating the entire atmosphere and the planet we walk on with this incredible neurotoxin. So once mercury's in the living environment, An EPA study found that by 1999, one in six women of childbearing age had blood levels of mercury above what is known to cause neurological harm to a developing fetus. You're not starting, with, in the case of thimerosal, from ground zero. You're starting uh, with already a body burden. So maybe even a small dose could put you over the edge. So that's um, not zero. Well, one, two, you got mercury coming off your sweat, Shiloh. It's mercury in the flesh of my tubes. It's mercury in the thimerosal. It's mercury in the silver fillings. It's mercury in the fish. It's, it's, mercury is the key word. And studies have been published linking it to testosterone. But Boyd Haley would go beyond this and actually demonstrate why. When adding thimerosal to a petri dish of brain neurons, he found about 5% neuron death by three hours. When testosterone was added to a different petri dish, all of the neurons were still alive at three hours. But when he added testosterone with thimerosal, 100% of the neurons were dead. Testosterone makes mercury much more toxic. He did the same experiment with estrogen and found that it actually protected the neurons from mercury. Glutathione is the key component a child needs to excrete mercury, and researchers have identified specific genetic mutations in children with autism that slow down the normal activity of the exact pathways that just so happen to make glutathione. Dr. Jill James' research confirmed that autistic children have much lower levels of glutathione than typical children. Dr. Amy Holmes would provide the next piece of the puzzle, finding children with autism had much less mercury in their first baby haircuts, meaning they were not excreting it like typical children. She also found the lower the hair levels, the more severe the child's autism. Dr. Jeffrey Bradstreet would take it one step further by administering a chelating drug that binds to mercury and transports it out through the urine. Now all of a sudden, autistic children were dumping out mercury compared to typical children. 
A study by Dr. James Adams showed children with autism had over two times more mercury in their baby teeth. A study out of Harvard looking at brain samples found autistic brains had almost twice the amount of mercury. So a child's testosterone levels combined with their ability to excrete mercury clearly define the genetic susceptibility. But as the exposure levels go up, the environmental trigger becomes the master neurotoxin. Mercury forms a very strong bond with selenium, and when exposed, it can render useless specific selenoproteins that play a key role in maintaining a child's glutathione in its active state. This reduces a child's glutathione levels. Mercury also inhibits the enzyme HST, which is required to convert DHEA to sulfates. This forces more DHEA in the wrong direction and increases a child's testosterone levels, making the mercury much more toxic. Elevated testosterone then inhibits the CBS enzyme, reducing glutathione levels even further. So as the mercury levels increased in the vaccines, more and more children who were less and less susceptible became more susceptible and ended up poisoned. Dr. Jill James has since published the ultimate study showing white blood cells of autistic children really are more susceptible to the toxic effects of thimerosal than those of typical children. But even more unbelievable, she was able to increase the susceptibility of the typical children's cells to match that of the autistic children's just by adding more thimerosal. Rain, silver fillings, the mother's age, coal plants, testosterone, genes, so many different studies all showing the link to autism all happen to have a single common denominator. A study in 2004 exposing mice to... Right. Doctor's orders. In 2009 and 2010, pregnant women were given a second mercury-loaded shot for the swine flu. This has never been done before. Yet the CDC likes to claim mercury was removed and the autism rates keep going up. They removed mercury from all vaccines and they're still seeing autism rates on the rise. Can you explain this for us? They forgot to mention the latest autism rate is based on children born clear back in 2002. Those who received the backstock of thimerosal vaccines and then got flu shots starting in 2004. There is no mercury in the routine schedule of childhood vaccines anymore, except maybe just trace amounts. Trace amounts. There is biologic plausibility right now. I really do believe there is to say that thimerosal causes autism-like features. was a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was a good encapsulation of everything that was contained in that documentary, Trace Amounts. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they do focus on mercury, but notice how they spoke at the beginning that aluminum is just like, wow, it just potentiates everything, you know. Without it, you know, mercury is more benign, and we heard later how bad it is. <laughs> yeah. But, but if you think of the synergistic effects of that, so you, you all the thimerosal and then the aluminum added on top of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And along, along with every other factor that like influences someone's health, when they're, especially when they're going through pregnancy, like if we consider the pesticides, the mm -hmm. crappy food, the, the EMF, like every single thing probably just compounds the issue so that if someone was living like a healthy life then perhaps this mercury and aluminium may be uh, may not be such a problem in and of itself but it seems like every single aspect of our lives we are um, bombarded with these toxins and that so you know it's no wonder why why there's so many autistic children being being born now is because mm. it's such an onslaught. Mm -hmm. And I find it really interesting that it actually says on the package insert that you really shouldn't give flu vaccines to pregnant women. Mm 
yet they're actually pushing it. And it's funny because I used to, I had a friend who um, was, was quite anti-vaccine and uh, she was a massage therapist and she would actually be talking to her clients about it and maybe maybe a little too enthusiastically, but uh, but she would just actually, she had a copy of the insert for the vaccine and she's like, just read this. This is what comes with the vaccine. Just read it. And that was often enough to have people kind of like open their eyes a little bit and be like, wait a minute. You know, why are they saying in the insert not to get it in these situations, but my doctor's telling me to get it? Well, that's kind of what happened to me with my kids because as we were discussing before the show, um, you know, my kids were born in the 90s and you watch this documentary and you realize like, oh my gosh, this is happening. And, and uh, a parent said to me, because I was on the fence, I wouldn't say I was totally supportive or against, but you know, you're young and you want to do the best thing and you're getting all this pressure. And she said to me something that really sealed the deal for me. She said, so what are you going to do if your child is that one in 10,000? You know, mm-hmm. how, how would you proceed then? Is it worth the risk to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this show, but you watch these documentaries. If, if our listeners have ever seen videos of autistic children, it is heartbreaking. I mean, that is your yeah. life. It's hard enough to raise a child, but to raise a child that loses all verbal communication, that has fits of crying and head banging. I mean, it is, it's really, really hard to watch. And, and, you know, going back to our discussion earlier about who in their right mind would ever want to do that to a kid. In exchange for that, a couple of weeks of chicken pox or the mumps, which most people get over relatively easily without having any kind of really bad effects from it. All of that just to save you from the mumps or the chicken pox or the measles. For anyone who's... Um who's seen the documentary Vaxxed, there's a particular scene in that movie and um, and it's showing that the mother is, is conducting an interview and she's speaking about her son and her son's actually sat right next to her and he's so um, completely oblivious to, to anything, to the whole topic and it is it's actually gut-wrenching. And when you when you consider, like, as you've just said, you know, would you rather get the flu or chicken pox or something so relatively benign that so many people get and so many people get better from? You know, if you look at the statistics for how many people die of the flu, I mean, it's so minuscule that to think that someone's entire life is going to be essentially ruined, uh, they're, they're going to be rendered into this, well, you know, just this state of existence, it, it's mm-hmm. just, it's completely, com- it confuses me and it aggravates me that, that the, the tide has turned this way, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we want to go in a little bit more of a positive direction? And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Nah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, in the article about aluminum, there are some things that can be done. And as we shared in our show description, is what are things that can be done to slow or maybe even reverse this issue? Yeah, because there is a, 
a little bit of a light in the tunnel in the movie Trace Amounts. I mean, this is a grown man who got a tetanus shot and had such really horrible symptoms, but he got better. And there was also a child in that movie, Trace Amounts, who had autism, and he got better. And I could actually talk about the time. You remember back that time when I had autism? So there is light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. You just have to look for it. And I guess we can get into some of the things that you can do. A big detoxifying regime. That's a lot. For those of yeah, for those of you who haven't read the book, uh, Detoxify or Die by Sherry Rogers, it's a very good one. Mm-hmm. Old, but it's still very, you know, actual. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, the, the um, protocol for um, getting kind of uh, a handle on autism or toxicity in general has has come from the um, the community in and of itself. You know, people who are kind of like working hard on their own to kind of get to the bottom of things and figure out what's going on. I know the Defeat Autism Now uh, website and forums have been kind of instrumental in kind of doing a lot of this research and figuring out kind of what will work and putting their their kids uh, or themselves in some cases on protocols to to try and detoxify and are having actually really good results from it. So. A lot of the uh, the things that um, I talked about in this article um, are kind of like an amalgamation of, of those things that, that people have really tried out and, and kind of gotten a handle on. And, you know, they, they'll vary different things, like they'll find different chelators work better in some situations and stuff. So um, the the ones the, the one from this article though I think is a really good uh, good kind of summation of um, different things that you can do to try and uh, and to get a handle on it. So should I go into it? Yes. <laughs> do share. Do share, Doug. <laughs> okay. Well, the first one that it says is um, to get aluminum uh, adju- get aluminum adjuvant out of the body, and I think that that kind of goes for um, all kind of traces of heavy metals, and whether it's an aluminum adjuvant or aluminum from some other source, you know, getting a handle on um, toxic load, I think, is a is a big, probably the most important step. So they uh, mention a couple of different things uh, to use, like uh, chelators, like silica and zeolite. Those are both very good ones. There's a really good form of silica actually called DMSA that I know was very big um, with the um, autistic kind of community for a while to use to kind of just pull uh, metals out of the body. It's really good for getting rid of lead. It's really good for getting rid of um, mercury, uh, aluminum. All those sorts of things. Uh, zeolites, uh, chlorella is really good as well. That's not one he mentions, but um, it's one that I've uh, done some research on as well. Um, any other ones anyone can think of? Mac. Uh, Mac isn't a chelator. It's more of um, supporting the body's uh, own uh, detoxification process, glutathione. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really good too. Anything that boosts your glutathione is going to be good. Um, alpha lipoic acid is good for that as well. Exercising, um, so yeah. sweating, yeah. infrared sauna. Mm-hmm. Infrared saunas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always had a good experience with far, far infrared sauna. Like if mm-hmm. I will be doing a detox protocol and I will be feeling very crappy, I will just go like 
to my blanket, you know, <laughs> part for it's mm. on a blanket. And after a couple of hours, I will feel like, you know, much better. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's, there's also a pharmaceutical drug, um, which is called ciproheptadine. And um, this has actually been shown to be really effective. So if you do have a child who has autism and you are working under the supervision of a doctor, it may be um, useful to maybe do some research into the, the use of ciproheptadine for autism. Um, I know that it's an antihistamine and it's an anti-serotonin drug. So it antagonizes the, the, the receptor and stops the serotonin in the brain because in, in autism there is um, uh, extremely high amounts of serotonin in the brain and that's one of the ways that people have been um, essentially trying to treat autism and they've gotten some good results in a lot of studies. Um, Aside from the, the the inflammation in the brain, the antihistamine would also be, a, you know, a positive influence. I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, the second point on on um, on his list here is actually uh, to try ketogenics, uh, ketogenic diet. And one of the reasons uh, behind that is that it does have kind of a a lowered inflammation um, effect. Um, so reducing the the inflammation, particularly brain inflammation in autism, is is kind of the next uh, the next most important thing to do. So one one way to do that might be the the pharmaceutical you mentioned, Elliot. But I think also um, doing a ketogenic diet as a way of kind of bringing that um, inflammatory response down. Mm -hmm. There was this article published in Townsend Letter, uh, the edition for January which highlights the ketogenic diet, how useful, or high-fat diet, how useful it is to detox. Because um, high, it says, uh, high-quality fat is a preferred fuel in mercury toxicity because it supplies much-needed fat-soluble vitamins and helps stabilize blood sugar levels. They actually show that vegetarian diets are particularly bad for people who are trying to detoxify. Because mm -hmm. it's virtually impossible to obtain sufficient protein on a vegetarian diet that is modified to reduce um, free thiol sources, which has to be with detox, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, one way to start is with a diet, you know, basically help your body to support all its physiological functions through the diet. And then you can mm -hmm. perhaps tolerate much better other detox protocols that some people have trouble with, but maybe because they don't do any dietary changes, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing yeah, to I keep mean, in mind with uh, these chelators is that uh, autistic kids have a hard time detoxifying. Like, they'll do hair samples of mercury on them, and the hair samples are pretty much in the normal range because all of the mercury in them is sequestered in their brains. So if you start an autistic mm. child on the chelator, it might take several weeks or months even for them to start excreting the thimerosal or mercury out through their urine or their poop just because mm. their, their detoxification systems are so far behind what is normal. And uh, glutathione was mentioned, and a really good way to boost glutathione levels is to take a coffee enema. It can boost it mm. up to like 500% from what I've read. Yeah. So uh, if you can handle it or tolerate it, you might want to go slowly into that. Like maybe after you 
do a couple rounds of chelation or something and uh, try a coffee enema because glutathione is, after all, the master antioxidant. You can Mm -hmm. really get your levels up that way. Well, third on the list is to um, heal the microbiome. So speaking of enemas, um, (laughs) one thing that's been discussed about on our forum quite a bit lately is the uh, probiotic enema and how that might actually be a far superior um, delivery method of good bacteria uh, as opposed to just taking capsules. So that's another thing to be considered because a a lot of research uh, shows a a correlation at the very least between, um, um, uh, sorry, autism type uh, disorders. I was going to say uh, Alzheimer's for some reason, Mm -hmm. but... Um, oh, it probably wouldn't be that far off. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, autism, uh, spectrum disorders, and uh, altered gut uh, microbiome. Mm-hmm. So um, there's been a lot of success with uh, microbiome-mediated therapies. Um, when you alter the, the uh, microbiome in a positive way, um, people start to see much ben- like a lot of benefits from that. So I think that's another thing that needs to be paid attention to. It's like the, the, this science seems to be kind of in its infancy right now about the microbiome. Like we're really only starting to now discover how important it is to have a balanced um, bacterial balance in, in your uh, digestive system. So yeah. I think that um, in the next few years, you're probably going to see some really big of, kind of discoveries in this area. Of that topic, there are already pilot studies of fecal transplants in autistic children where children are responding very positively, you know, just for something as simple as a fecal transplant, you know, healthy poop from another person. Yeah. On an enema, basically. There are other ways, uh, like for, through a colonoscopy, but basically doing a retention enema with healthy poop is having good results in autistic children. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah. Well, fourth on the list here is vitamin D. Um, again, vitamin D science has gone kind of in leaps and bounds recently, um, but they're starting to see how how tied vitamin D is in the um, in, to the immune system and how important it is. So, I think uh, one of the, the the reasons that vitamin D is is so important in these protocols is that um, it helps to kind of regulate the uh, immune response and the inflammatory response specifically. So, um, especially in any kind of autoimmune condition, but also in, uh, in autism as well. So, um, and of course, the best way to get vitamin D, Elliot? <laughs> get out of Elliot's get the out best of source of vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll Elliot, there is none today. <laughs> uh, yeah. You also want that cholesterol sulfate as well and all the other beneficial effects of sunlight. So if you've got a kid with autism or if you think you've got mercury issues, just go out in the sun, get some sun, try to get some every day if you can. And, you know, that should help. Yeah, regulate your circadian rhythms at the same time. (laughs) Totally. And the final one on the list is selenium. So that's a a very important uh, trace mineral that we all need a great deal of. Um, selenium actually, it was mentioned in that audio clip that we just listened to, um, that it, it kind of preferentially binds to, uh, to mercury. Um, it doesn't, it, it just, just supplementing selenium isn't going to do much because, um, well, because of complicated biological kind of processes, but, 
Um, selenium is also very important for the body's detoxification system. So, um, being, uh, yeah, taking selenium is definitely a, a beneficial, um, uh, supplement to be taking. So, yeah, and just eating Brazil nuts. Some people think that they can just eat Brazil nuts and get adequate amounts of selenium, but often that isn't isn't the case because uh, in many places the selenium is so um, deficient in the soil. There's there's almost mm. none in there, so that the foods that you eat really don't really contain much. Um, so it's probably a good idea to to supplement with that. I think. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to add a note that a couple of minerals that are always deficient in people who have heavy metal uh, toxicity is uh, magnesium and zinc. And uh, I have a zinc deficiency, but for the longest time, it was very hard for me to tolerate any kind of zinc supplement. And I discovered that if you take it with a shot of apple cider vinegar, you will digest it and tolerate it just perfectly well. How did you discover that, Gabby? Just by accident? I was reading a book. <laughs> I was reading a book of a total unrelated topic, how to digest better, you know, uh, so you don't have so many food intolerances. And uh, it, was hi- uh, it was highlighted in apple cider vinegar. And uh, this is something a lot of people talk about, but I just didn't thought that it was such a big deal. It is, actually. The first time I took apple cider vinegar, I had more energy, was in a better mood. My bowel movements were better. My tummy felt flat after eating because I was digesting so well, and I could tolerate the zinc supplement, you know. Mm. That's great. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is because of the sheer amount of um, lipid peroxidation going on in the brain of someone who has mercury toxicity or in the whole body, actually, um, a vitamin E supplement might also be uh, useful. The vitamin E is predominantly the, you know, the, the antioxidant for the fats in the body. So um, I know that there's been a lot of sort of beneficial results from people who who take liquid vitamin E. Um, so that might be something to consider as well. Mm. Cool. Well, we're nearing the end of our show and we still have Zoya's pet health segment to listen to is any of our co-hosts want to add anything or should we just go on to the pet health segment and then wrap it up after that sounds good all right yeah let's hear from those happy animals (laughs) hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show Today we are going to tackle a very important topic for cat owners, specifically why cats are vomiting. Listen to the following recording by Dr. Karen Becker, as many of the reasons are very surprising and counterintuitive. Here's the recording. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and today we're going to discuss why cats throw up. A lot of cats throw up a lot. In fact, this is a very common discussion on the Healthy Pets Forum. And so we're going to go over some of the basic reasons why cats throw up so that you can check them off your list and hopefully hone in on potential reasons why your cat's throwing up that you'd be able to address with your veterinarian. Keep in mind that there's lots and lots of, there's lots and lots of reasons why cats throw up. There's not one specific cause for vomiting. So sometimes people email me and say, why is my cat throwing up? And this is a pretty long list. So, The video is to help you people discern which one of these issues could be going on with your cats. Number one, first place to look is at diet. 
If your cat is eating a poor quality, rendered diet, which means proteins that are not approved for human consumption, these are proteins that, are, that consist of leftover pieces parts from the slaughterhouses, sometimes bird feathers and beaks, skin, hooves, eyes, heads, although that is considered protein, those particular types of proteins can be difficult for digestion and assimilation, and that can result in vomiting. Uh, some pets or cats develop allergies to their food. In fact, this is a really common reason for intermittent vomiting over a long period of time. Cats that act great, don't lose weight, they don't act sick, they look wonderful, they just intermittently throw up, you need to be thinking about a food allergy. Food allergies come about when we feed our cats the same foods over and over. Now, some people say, but my cat won't eat anything else. In fact, most of us end up feeding cat foods over and over, not because we don't know better, but because cats don't want to eat other foods. I have many cats in my practice that are seafood poultry junkies, and they get hooked onto seafood or they get hooked onto poultry, and you try and feed them another protein source, and they want nothing to do with it. So creating some nutritional variety through trickery, and we have videos on how to convert your cat to a different protein source, so you may want to consider watching them because it is important that if your cat's vomiting that you address diet as a potential cause because feeding the same type of protein, even if it's excellent quality human grade, feeding your cat the exact same type of protein over and over can certainly result in gastrointestinal inflammation or food allergies, and the symptom can ultimately be vomiting for your cat. So you need to consider not only quality but also how often you're switching proteins sources as a potential culprit. Treats, oftentimes at my practice, we have people feeding phenomenal quality foods and then they feed really trashy treats to their cats. If you read the back of your cat treats and it contains propylene glycol and FD&C red number four and um, a whole host of words that you can't pronounce like ethoxyquin or if there's chemical dyes or emulsifiers or surf, uh, surfactants in those foods, if you have any, any ingredient in the back of your cat treat that you can't pronounce, don't feed it to your cat. That can be a root cause of GI inflammation and in turn vomiting in your cat. Last but not least is milk. All mammals will probably drink milk, but uh, it's important if you're going to consume milk, it'd be the same species because you can have gastrointestinal issues if you're nursing from a different species, and that's the problem with cats. Cats don't have the appropriate enzymes to break down the milk sugar that's in cow's milk. So cats' pancreases do not secrete the lactase necessary to break down the lactose that's found in cow's milk, and that can lead to secondary GI symptoms, including vomiting. So uh, our remedy for the potential dietary aspects of intermittent vomiting in your cat would be to switch your cat onto human-grade canned food. If you're on human-grade canned food, you can switch your slowly transition your cats onto raw food, and then every three months consider rotating different protein sources to avoid potential food allergies. Other common reasons why cats will throw up is that they're gobblers. If you have competition in your home between cats, that's a very common reason, especially if you're portion feeding your cats, two or more cats, you have them on a diet so that they don't gain weight, and you put down their portion in the morning, you'll see kitties eat really fast and then maybe go over and see if, if, if the buddy didn't eat as fast because maybe they could eat both portions if they could hurry up and eat. If you have competition happening in your house, you need to split the cats up so that they, so that they can't see or hear the other cat eat, which means put one in the kitchen and one in a bedroom put down their portion, give them 20 minutes to be able to consume their food in a slower fashion, and then pick the bowls up. If you have a single cat that's still a gobbler, you may need to spread meals out, a tiny amount of food over you know, an hour, you know, a, a bite every hour for a couple of hours to help s slow down how quickly your cat wants to gobble his or her food. When cats eat a large amount of food quickly, 
Um, cats are, of course, quadrupeds, and so their esophagus is horizontal versus vertical. So food can slap against their lower esophageal sphincter and can cause regurgitation of whole undigested food several minutes sometimes after they eat. So slowing down gobbling will help. Food timing is another reason why cats will throw up. Let's say you're portion schedule feeding your cats, and your cats know that they're going to be fed at 6 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock at night. Sometimes at 5 o'clock in the morning, you'll, you'll, your cat will come get you up and say it's time to eat. During that time, your cat's anticipating food. She's going to be releasing hydrochloric acid and bile and gastric juices to be able to process the food. Let's say you get delayed and food doesn't come at 6 o'clock. You end up feeding your cat at 7 o'clock. There's a very good chance he or she will throw up, vomit, and some white foam, uh, maybe a little bit of... of um, bile, uh, yellow stain in that vomitus, the cats will act fine. They'll still be excited to eat, but what happens is that strong hydrochloric acid irritates the lining of the tummy. No food has entered into the stomach, so they throw up their gastric acid to avoid additional irritation. So in those situations, uh, at least give your cat a treat. If you know that your cat's prone to vomiting just before meals, give your kitty a treat right when you wake up. And then let's say you get home from work and your cat's asking for dinner, they want to have dinner. Giving That's a good time to give a treat as well, to put something in their stomach to help absorb that hydrochloric acid and decrease gastrointestinal irritation from your cat recognizing it's time to eat and producing hydrochloric acid, which can be irritating. Another reason that you can see vomiting is enzyme deficiency. Cats sometimes don't produce adequate lipase, uh, protease, and amylase from their pancreas, and so pancreatic insufficiency can lead to chronic or acute low-grade pancreatitis. Pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas, is very common in cats. In fact, we're finding as veterinarians that it's a lot more common than what we assumed when it, for the underlying root cause of intermittent vomiting. So adding a digestive enzyme assures your cat that if your cat's pancreas is cooperating and producing enzymes, adding additional enzymes to the food is, is not a problem. If by chance your pet pancreas is not secreting digestive enzymes, you supplying enzymes in the food is a great way to assure that your cat is going to have adequate enzymes to process the meal that you've just fed it. Hairballs. Another big reason why cats will vomit, if you're unsure if your cat is dealing with hairballs, uh, hairballs are cylindrical vomitus. It comes out kind of as a plug. Uh, oftentimes there's some clear water or fluid around it. Cats that have high maintenance hair, long hair, you need to you need to facilitate the reduction of the amount of hair your cat's eating by brushing your cat. Brushing all the cats in your home is a good idea. Oftentimes there's one over groomer, so the one kitty will groom herself and then all the other kitties in the home and ingest four times the amount of hair that what her GI tract was designed to process. You facilitating hair passage with a pinch of fiber. There's some petroleum-free hairball remedies on the market you can consider. But um, brushing or even shaving down really hairy cats that eat a tremendous amount of hair will dramatically reduce the amount of hairballs that your cat's having. There are some more significant reasons why cats throw up. Poisonings, unfortunately, are a very common reason for sudden vomiting in cats. So if you have a cat that is not a barfer, that starts barfing, you need to be concerned about your cat ingesting something that could have been toxic. Common household toxicities are plants. Now, if you have a cat that desires to eat plants, probably uh, he or she's lacking raw food being supplied in the diet. So cats by nature aren't, they, they don't want to eat your house plants. They don't have a house plant deficiency. They have a raw food deficiency. So at least supplying cat grass, which is wheat grass, is one way to offer some living foods to help decrease the amount of 
of potentially toxic plant eating your cat could be doing in your home. In addition to plants, there could be herbicides, pesticides, or household cleaners that cats can, can get into that can cause the symptom of vomiting. If you believe that your cat could be poisoned or have ingested something that's toxic, you need to call the ASPCA Poison Control Hotline at 888-426-4435. Uh, in addition to toxicosis, cats can sometimes vomit because they have inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammatory bowel disease is the big umbrella in which uh, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, falls under, gastritis, enteritis, colitis, as well as pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas, all reasons why cats can vomit. Chronic GI inflammation in cats, chronic intermittent low-grade vomiting can lead to actually gastrointestinal lymphoma. So there is a form of GI cancer that can cause cats to vomit as well. Metabolic issues such as hyperthyroidism uh, can often upregulate a cat's metabolism and cause them to throw up. Uh, organ disease or impaired organ detoxification. So if kidney and liver, the organ of detoxification, aren't functioning right, if you have kidney or liver inflammation or damage going on in your pet, you can see vomiting occur secondary to metabolic issues or organ disease as well. All this to say, cats that throw up, it's not normal. It's very important that I stress that to you. I can't tell you the number of times that people come to me and say, oh no, my local vet says it's fine for my cat to throw up. The only animal that should vomit regularly are vultures. Vultures vomit as a built-in self-defense mechanism. So the only PASCO for free for the barfing would be vultures. Cats and any other mammal for that, mem for, for that matter should not be throwing up on a regular basis. So it's important that if you have a vomiting cat, you ask your veterinarian about some of these potential causes. You rule out the big scary things like hyperthyroidism and organ disease. And then you can consider asking for a functional gastrointestinal test, which is the blood draw that's sent to Texas A&M Gastrointestinal Lab that can help discern if the cat's dealing with malabsorption, maldigestion, or if there's a small intestinal disease happening in your pet that could be creating the situation of unexplained vomiting. Most importantly, and whatever you do, don't allow your veterinarian to, to offer drugs that suppress the vomiting or, in fact, the symptom without addressing the underlying root cause. <coughs> Well, thank you, Zoya. That was a very informative pet health segment. Good to know. Interesting Definitely. about the, the food. Mm -hmm. We'd like to thank all of our listeners, chatters, and our co-hosts for joining us today. I hope we were able to shine a little bit of light on this topic. And again, I don't think we'll see this controversy going away anytime soon. So thank you all for tuning in. Make sure to turn in, tune in, turn in <laughs> to uh, <laughs> Behind the Headlines on Sunday for another interesting, thought-provoking topic. And we will be back again next Friday with another health and wellness segment. Thanks for having us, and have a wonderful Bye, weekend. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.